The great thing about our business model is we don't necessarily care what the vehicle is doing once it becomes electrified. It can be a bookmobile, it can be a bloodmobile, it can be a hauler at a refuse center, it can be a people mover vehicle. We are focusing on a class seven platform to get started. But pretty much every city has them, all fleets have them. So let's convert the vehicles that are the low-hanging fruit first and have a meaningful impact out of the gate. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donald Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Our guests, Alan Dowdell and his company, Revo, are tackling a massive environmental problem to the tune of not one, not two, not three, but $400 billion. That's the total addressable market for powertrains for all of the world's trucks and buses, nearly all of which have the capacity for conversion to electric, converting some of the worst polluters to sustainable low or no emission fleets will be a huge step for California's goals phasing out gas-powered vehicles by 2035. Alan combines his engineering, military, and leadership experience with a passion to save the planet, one truck at a time. Here's how he got his start on the path to fixing one of the biggest environmental challenges we face today. I grew up in Louisiana, in a small town, and my dad's a mechanical engineer, so I was encouraged as a young uh, kid to to think about engineering. And I think somewhere around the eighth or ninth grade, I decided I wanted to be an electrical engineer. And we were very kind of hands-on around the house. And so I spent a lot of time holding the flashlight from my dad as we tore apart transmissions or timing belts. And he kind of created this a sense that you should be able to take care of things yourself and you should be curious about how things work. And so I owe a lot of that to encouragement from my dad and time there. I don't know if I was always happy <laughs> holding that flashlight, but that did create a sense of curiosity as a kid. Yeah, a real popular science moment, right? Popular mechanics. I mean, I used to be the one holding the flashlight for my dad too. <laughs> <laughs> no, we had all those magazines and that definitely set me on a path to think about the world in, in certain ways and problem solve in certain ways. And so whether it's business or engineering, I think a lot of the same pull yourself up and get it done feelings are, are there. So you and your father are out tinkering in the garage, assuming your mother's from the South as well. What was your mother's influence on you? Actually, my mom was, she worked in banking as a teller for many years. She worked in the tax collector's office and the deputy sheriff's office and uh, wore a uniform to work every day. Don't mess with mom. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So no, and I have, you know, I have a younger brother who's also, he's a mechanical engineer. I'm in sort of the, the, the black sheep of the family, the electrical engineer. But we both attended Louisiana Tech University and, and kind of, in many ways, wanted to follow in my dad's engineering footsteps. Louisiana, was that like your first pick? Like you wanted to stay home base? I mean, it's a great school and electrical engineering is one of the tougher engineering degrees. So what, what led you to stick to Louisiana? 
Well, I wanted to get out of town. Like I wanted to do anything. Like I was kind of done with small town life. And one of the things is raising your hand to go places and do things that are hard. And if they might be interesting, even better. So that sort of led me to the idea of joining the military out of university and joining the submarine force, where if you think about a submarine and if you're technically curious with an engineering background, you've got a nuclear reactor with all of the instrumentation, you've got turbines, you've got hydraulic systems, you're creating your own oxygen and hydrogen, by the way. You're doing cryptography. And by the way, you get to drive the ship from time to time so and shoot weapons and cool things like that. What kind of submarines were you on? I was on fast attack. I joined a crew of the USS Jefferson City in the Newport News shipbuilding under new construction. So I was able to actually stand in the reactor compartment before we loaded fuel and see the whole ship come together, the whole boat, as we call it, come together which you kind of become an old hand pretty quickly when the two years onward, people ask questions about where's that valve or where does that line run? And you saw it go in. And so you know, you know a lot about the boat from the inside out. Do you consider this like the first fleet you were involved in? Because we're, as you, we progressively <laughs> get into trucking, was submarines your first fleet that you, you know, were part of? Well, for sure. Yeah, I think it's a little bit different fleet, <laughs> but yes, it, it was my first fleet. But it did create a broad sense of technologies. You were expected to be able to go deep on any concept on the boat. And so when I think about new problems at Revo Powertrains, I'm not shy about asking the hard questions about the technology or where we are in the engineering process. And there's never really been barriers. Like I wouldn't say I'm, I don't, I can't think about that or I'm not deep enough. I don't want to go deep into that, into that point. It's, it's wide open. And that also translates over into business concepts and finance and how to term sheets for startups work. Like however you think about whatever problem, you can go very deep. Well, and nuclear energy is a different type of energy, right? And as your your career advanced and you, you get into the EV aspect, and I think sometimes people often forget how important what we learn in the military can be applied to the civilian and to the, the cities that we live in, right? And oftentimes that engineering translates into the public domain. How long were you in the military? Eight years. Oh, that's pretty significant. And then from there, what did you, what was your next venture? Well, I wanted to kind of move more into the commercial world or the sector of manufacturing. I went to work for Corning, had a great 20-year career at Corning, started out manufacturing optical fiber, and many of the same systems of valves and sensors and technology were very familiar to me in the manufacturing plant. But somebody immediately decided I was better at presentations and business than manufacturing, got pulled into business development, market development. And Corning took me to Europe, lived in London for five years, and met my wife there. So she came back to the States with me. They took me to an MBA at Sloan and then to China for 10 years from 2005 to 2015. I had a great career in the military. I had the career arc in telecommunications. I consider 10 years in China to be its own career itself with its own unique set of problems and issues. Coming away from that, looking for kind of what's next, right? Like what's on the horizon. During my time in my MBA program, I started studying technology migration, things like moving from TV tubes to plasma or LCD. My thesis was in lighting, LED lighting uh, transformation that was happening in the early 2000s. And so part of the MIT group here in the Bay Area was holding lectures and I saw my first presentation around connected and autonomous and electric vehicles. And I said, hey, that's interesting. That's going to be something. This is around 2016. 
and started looking at Tesla, looking at some of the other startups in the area. And I found ChargePoint, which I thought was two things. One, a great entry into transportation and electrification, just knowing the amount of data that they're collecting in terms of EVs and charging sessions and so forth. And also moving from a large company at the time, I was at Thermo Fisher in, in Life Sciences, and moving from there to a smaller startup was an experience I'd wanted and was a, just a great time at ChargePoint uh, running business development strategy for the company for, for several years. Yeah, and in the scheme of things, that with the electrification of the road, so the, the consumers set in mean, ChargePoint is definitely one that, that stands out as being one of the dominant and early stage companies, right? So your electrical engineering degree now is becoming <laughs> validated, right? <laughs> well, and actually, it had been a while since I had used some of the skills that I gained in EE. We were developing a DC fast charger at the time. My team was really focused on market expansion, international expansion for the company, how our network was going to talk to other networks so that a driver could seamlessly move between EVgo chargers and ChargePoint chargers, for example. And just the amount of data you could ask the data questions like, well, when a Google installs new EV chargers at work and people change their behavior from charging at home to at work, like how does that shift? Or when a group of people install home chargers, how does that change their charging behavior? So you had millions of charging sessions that you could ask this data, interesting questions about. And my team actually monetized that data and worked with some of the labs in the country to utilities as well to help them with their strategic plans around EV deployments, EV charging deployments. Alan joined Rightspeed, now Revo Powertrains, in 2020 and is now the company's CEO. Founded by Tesla co-founder Ian Wright, the company was one of the first to tackle the heavy-duty truck sector by developing an electric powertrain. What's a powertrain, you may ask? This is a system of components inside the truck that includes the engine, transmission, drive shaft, and axles. If you think of the truck as the body, the chassis is the skeleton, and the powertrain is the muscle that gives the body power. Unlike automobiles, especially today, where every different make has its own proprietary parts, trucks are more interchangeable, which is how you can create a powertrain that fits into a lot of different trucks. Enter Revo. So let's talk about what the challenges and the marketplace and what specifically your company is doing. Yeah. So Revo Powertrains is all about building zero emission, fully battery electric kits, powertrain kits that can go into existing vehicles to repower them from dirty DC vehicles and upscale them, recycle them to, to fully battery electric. But the kit can also be used for new vehicles as well. So our long-term plan is to sell to OEMs so that today you can buy a truck and choose the Cummins diesel engine. In the future, we want people to be able to order their truck from Volvo or Freightliner or whoever with the Revo powertrain inside. And we're on our way to do that. So is there an urgency? I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about the need to transform from gas to EV in the transportation sector? Yeah, I was super excited when the Model 3, I started seeing them on the 280, or even today, I still get excited about seeing a Rivian. But I also get very excited about seeing the Freightliner delivery truck now. They're only about, represent about 4% of the vehicles on the road, but they burn about 25% of our fuel, mostly diesel, which emits about 25% of emissions. So very small part of the fleet. 
is creating a disproportionate amount of the road pollution, of the transportation pollution, which is about 30% of all pollution that's created if you consider power plants and methane and other sources. So it's actually a really large problem. So if you can take one of those trucks off the road or convert it to zero emission electric or hydrogen fueled, it's the same as putting 30 Teslas on the road or same as, as putting 20 Rivian delivery vehicles on the road. So you can have a very large impact by electrifying that portion of the fleet very quickly. And they happen to be the most dirty vehicles on the road. So the emission standards on class six, seven and eight trucks, the larger trucks, is way less stringent than it is on a diesel vehicle. And we all saw what happened with the Volkswagen diesel gates debacle. So it's a great place to be and a great market to be focusing on. So you're focused on, let's break it down, the range extended vehicle. So this is garbage trucks and like school buses and mail trucks and some of the things that even Biden has talked about that needs to change. In California, we have a 2035 deadline. So can you set up the problem? What is the problem that you're actually tackling and and the approach. Right. So we are focused on zero emission, fully battery electric powertrains and focusing on powertrain kits. So if you think about an analogy, Cummins is a diesel engine manufacturer today. Allison is a transmission manufacturer for large trucks. These companies are providing the powertrain components to the industry. So if you have an engine that goes bad, you can replace it with a Cummins or a transmission. You can replace that with with an Allison transmission, for example. What no one really has today is like a full powertrain kit that replaces a diesel kit. And that's what we have. But think of it in terms of a fully battery electric. So the axle gets removed, the transmission, the engine, all the fuel systems come out of the vehicle. And we apply an electric axle, brackets, and battery packs that connect via inverters to the motors and the wiring harnesses that also go to the digital dash for the driver and providing telematics. And so the first market we're focusing on is class six, seven trucks, like the standard delivery trucks and reefers and beverage delivery trucks in the market, and also school buses. They're very, very similar. Rail system type C school buses are very similar. And so we're creating a kit where you can decontent that diesel powertrain and recondition the vehicle if necessary and then apply the new zero emission battery powered kit and then put that vehicle back on the road to zero emissions back into the fleet. It's like the ultimate upcycling of the existing vehicles today. And we see this as a way to accelerate the electrification of the fleets. Otherwise, if you think about these mandates, as you said, California announced no new gas cars being sold after 2035, right? These same regulations are coming after the high emission vehicles. And I like to say it's impossible to believe that all of these vehicles are going to be transitioned to zero emission via new vehicles. Just if you take 500,000 school buses in the country, we'd love to electrify all of those. That is a $200 billion problem if you wanted to electrify them with all new school buses. We can do that much cheaper and faster by upcycling the existing chassis. Yeah, I mean, upcycling is really right-sizing, right? Because of this, the amount of energy that goes in the waste that goes into building new trucks is ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely correct. So now you have this, like, Lego, I'm going to call it Legos, but this basically this turnkey kit that then allows you to modify and then really kind of magnify the electrification. So what what is the benefit for businesses, whether they're a food, beverage, you know, grocery store, school bus fleet, you know, what is, what do they gain? 
So it's really simple because there's fewer moving parts. We hear about this with battery electric vehicles all along. You have lower maintenance, lower maintenance costs. And so that's one big chunk. The larger piece is the fuel. And so depending on where you live and what you're paying for kilowatt hours, you can cut your fuel cost down to a quarter of what you're paying or a third of what you're paying. And so most of the the savings comes from those two things. There's a few, few other things that, that the fleets pick up on, but those are the, are the two biggest ones. And drivers love driving electric vehicles and they love driving electric trucks. And so you get hits on employee retention gets better. Your marketing images to your customers in the market are better. And so there's a lot of benefits for the fleets to, to electrify, even outside the regulations that are coming to force them to electrify. So the, the paybacks can be as fast as two to three years for a powertrain kit that goes into an existing vehicle. And what is the in terms of like maintenance and kind of other fuel savings upon doing this, is there additional residuals to, to save? Well, there's really not a lot. It's kind of fire and forget. So once the vehicle is converted to fully battery electric, you're just plugging it in and the maintenance costs go down. And, and so it's great for the fleets in that, in that way. So what's your message to not just private sector, but to urban and municipalities that are looking for electrification of buses. So this would apply to city buses as well as it would to school buses, right? And any of that infrastructure. So the great thing about our business model is we're really application independent. We don't necessarily care what the vehicle is doing once it becomes electrified. It can be a bookmobile. It can be a bloodmobile. It can be a hauler at a refuse center. It can be a people mover vehicle. We are focusing on a class seven platform to get started. And pretty much every, every city has them. All fleets have them. So we're going after the highest running type vehicles so we can get market traction early. My message to them is don't try to solve for the edge cases. So if you're talking to a school and you're talking to them about electrification, one of the first things you'll hear is, well, we've got a band and the band has to travel or we've got a soccer team. And I'm like, okay, we will get there. <laughs> Battery technologies are improving. We're going to be able to load more pack on in the future, but let's go after the 70 or 80% of your missions that you do today, the 50 mile routes, the 75 mile routes, same message for the municipalities. So let's convert the vehicles that are the low hanging fruit first Let's figure out the infrastructure, right? Because that's a long lead. It's You have to physically, you know, have power pools and work with the utilities to get charging infrastructure in. And you have to get accustomed to the software and the charging algorithms that you're going to be applying to the fleet. So let's get started on those and have a meaningful impact out of the gate and not worry too much about the objections and the issues that people bring up about longer distances or heavier power use vehicles. So California is a very progressive state. What's your message to other states that might not be as progressive, why they need to maybe step up for change? I would say there are advocates across the board in all the states. In addition to California, there was an MOU that was signed by additional 14 states plus the District of Columbia to adhere to the same standards and progress plans that California has in place. And so a number of states are stepping up. And even the ones that haven't signed the MOU the many of the cities are being very progressive. Now it's early days. They're getting their first electric bus or their their first electric school bus or their first fleet of municipal cars. So if you if you you know spend time in the space, you're gonna find a lot of advocates being very active in the cities and they need budget, they need support, and they need city councils and state legislation to 
to help with you know, some of the incentives and advantages that they can give to the to the fleets to electrify faster. So I dug up an electric bus global market 2022 report that said that the electric bus market is expected to grow 47.31 billion. That's a huge piece of pie for you to grab onto. So I like to show people the curve. I'm not great at predicting the future. I like meaning no one is, and I don't like to do it. What I do know is the curve is up and to the right, and it it, it looks nearly exponential, if not exponential. So we are in the very early days. We're in the 1% of the conversion. Now, if you're in Palo Alto and you pull up to a red light, three to four out of 10 of the cars there are fully battery electric, mostly Teslas. And so you're, you know, here in Silicon Valley, you can see it happening in the passenger car space. And when we're sitting in 2030 or 2035, the same thing's going to be happening when you're on the road. You're going to see, oh, battery electric truck. Oh, battery electric truck. Oh, battery electric bus. So the market is huge. And today, just on powertrains alone, the total market worldwide is like $400 billion. It's a hundred and change billion in the U.S. So the TAMs are really big. The point I want to focus on is getting started, getting those conversions happening now and trying to accelerate them. China was able to do it. China transformed 480,000 transit buses over the last 10 years to fully battery zero emission. Here in the U.S., we're still in the less than 10,000, tens of thousands. So we have a long way to go to catch up. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Paula Bejarano, the director of business development at the global trucking giant Navistar and the author of Autonomosity, Autonomous Vehicles and Emerging Business Models. Don't discount things like the school buses. I think any kind of mass transportation, it makes sense to automate. If you think about airplanes, so you probably feel comfortable putting your child on an airplane. And I say 60% or more of the operations in a plane are done by a computer, right? Maybe not landing or taking off, that's a pilot. But then once you go on, on, the, on the air, it's all autopilot and people don't even think about it, right? You just kind of like say, okay, you know, I trust this because it's been around long enough and regulation is there and companies maintain those vehicles. So I think eventually we'll get to that. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers, they're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So in my normal day, one of the things that annoys me the most, garbage day, it annoys my dog even more, stop and start, stop and start, right? That's a perfect candidate for your platform. So for those who don't know the difference between a, a class six and seven, that are used to driving regular cars. Can you define what the significance, what those classes are? Can you break it down? It's a little bit inside baseball, but if you're in the city and you see these kind of stand-up cab-over designs, like the Isuzu's and the Hino's, where they're kind of very flat-nosed vehicles, those are typically class five, maybe class six, but probably class five vehicles. If you think about a Penske truck or a Ryder truck that's a big box truck, those, if they have a single axle on the back, they tend to be a class six vehicle. If they have a dual axle, dual tandem driver in the back, they're class seven. 
And then for 18-wheelers and for large transit buses, those are all dual wheels. The commuter vehicles, commuter buses with dual axles, those tend to be class eight vehicles. But they all have, what I really pay attention to is the engine size. So is it a six liter engine, eight liter engine, nine liter engine? And that's really there to create the torque. One of the great things about our powertrain kit is it applies, the same kit applies to six, seven, and eight. Only with eight, we do a dual tandem axle configuration. So we don't have to worry about different engine sizes because each one is exactly the same and applies across the across those those different vehicles. So again, one kit for a very wide market. Yeah. So with that range retrofit, is it always going to be the 25% fuel savings or is that very depending on the actual vehicle? Uh, it, it's very vehicle dependent. It's also route dependent too, depending on what the vehicle is doing. Even the driver can have an impact, the acceleration, how the behavior of the driver. And then the temperature outside also matters a bit. You get a little less efficiency when it's colder than when it's than it's warmer. But in general, a good engineer is designed around those constraints. And if nominally you're doing a 75-mile route, the vehicle's going to have a 125 or 150-mile range. So the drivers really don't have to worry at all. But, but in general, a good rule of thumb, depending, and again, you have to kind of do the math on what you're paying for electricity, but saving 75% off your fuel cost is attainable. And we, we see it in some of the deployments that are happening today already. Yeah, so if the fleet, depending on the size, would just start with just one transformational kit then they're on their way to greener and more sustainable supply chain and delivery mechanisms. I mean, you can start with one. For sure. And we see that today happening already. Many of the fleets haven't woken up to this or they're not, you know, being progressive enough. So that is the other 99% of the market that's in front of us. But it's going to happen or it is going to spread. I was just at a school bus transportation conference recently. They have those. And people are still deciding between propane and battery electric, right? So the school districts still have some choices. They've got to figure out the infrastructure, but all that's going to happen. These are all engineering problems. This is not like nuclear fusion where, you know, invention required here. You have what the problem is, the constraints are kind of well identified. A lot of people worry about the grid. They worry about the utilities. In my view, the utilities have all the tools that they need to make sure that the grid remains as viable as possible during this transformation. There was a huge transformation when data centers came online, the internet created terawatts of demand on the grid over the last 30 years, and the grids were able to supply that. The same thing will happen as these high-power depots come into and get connected to the grid. It's going to be gradual. It's not going to be a one-time hit to the grid. What is your perception of autonomous trucks, and is it irrelevant that they're autonomous to transform to the kit? Can you, is is this applicable to autonomous Tracking system? Uh, I think it's an adjacency. The, I think AV equals EV. I think Mary, Mary Barrow and the GM team have said that for a while. It would be ridiculous to have an autonomous vehicle pull up to a gas pump and have a person who put gas or diesel in it. So I think they coexist together. Most of the companies like Gaddick and some of the other, Astara, the autonomous uh, trucking companies, fully expect for those rigs to be electrified. In the beginning, they won't be. I think trucking is the easiest use case for autonomous because there's fewer edge cases on highway roads. But again, inventions aren't really required. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be just in solving engineering problems step by step. So if you were to go back into college as an electrical engineering student, is there a course or a future course that needs to be had for the next generation of engineers and thinkers to participate in 
the future of electrification and transportation and trucking particularly? Well, I mean, there are schools who have great transportation programs. I think the UC system, UCLA, UC Irvine, some of the other ones have great data sets around transportation and all fuels included, not just electric. So I think you can take the online courses. I think many of them have open courses that you could take if your university doesn't offer that. I thought where you were going uh, was more around what can engineers or even non-engineers take today to kind of prepare themselves for this design thinking and courses that sort of tackle problem solving, I think are, are key. I'm not sure if you can teach a person to be curious, but having a curiosity in general, I've seen people who say, well, I'm not technical. I don't want to get into it. But then as you talk to them and you start kind of explaining it, the curiosity comes out. So I think I'm very optimistic about people and their ability to go deep and think about problems. And so we didn't have design thinking courses when I was in university, but that would be something that I think that would, would help prepare someone to think about a future world with electrification in it. So the next generation kids, and I know you have kids, they're growing up with a different perspective. How do we get that generation to, to take the baton of what you're doing and become these future leaders within the electrification of transportation? The transitions of technology happen like right in front of us and we just don't see them unless you're kind of paying attention and looking out for these signals. You don't really notice it. And so I think the ki the kids will, I do worry about like software is great. I think having a lot of coders is great. A big part of our system is the software control, but you still need the hardware. You still need the mechanical engineer. You still need the electrical engineers to actually do the board layouts and so forth. And you know, I do worry a little bit that we have maybe too many coders and, and fewer hardware people in the world. And I kind of maybe over-rotate on the engineering and the technology, but we need finance people. We need HR managers. And so a person who, hey, my superpower is dealing with people. So I think I want to be in HR. I think that's great. I also think that that person can also be technically curious. I think they also can have problem-solving skills in their own area and should spend time on the whatever the factory floor equivalent is with the teams and, and be able to have conversations about the problems and, and the issues that are going on in the company, not necessarily just for, for engineering, but for, for everyone having that broad viewpoint. I think that's key. So SIM is key for HR managers too. Yeah. And we need truck drivers. The world needs truck drivers. So let's talk about that. If you were to sit down right now in a conversation with a truck driver who's maybe he's been driving 15, 20 years and he drives whatever he's told to drive, but now he has to go electric because his company is smart and they've decided to upcycle and, and use your kit. What is that conversation like in terms of getting them comfortable the same way you described getting your son comfortable driving? So I, I don't have a lot of opportunity to talk to truck drivers, but I do spend a lot of time in Lyfts and Ubers. And when I was at ChargePoint, we ran programs with both Lyft and Uber for electrification. So often the conversation goes to, when do you think you might transfer to electric? What are your concerns? Like, what what's the roadblock? What is their concern? It, it, well, upfront costs. Uh, many of them, they drive, drive their own car. And so electric vehicles tend to be more expensive. But ultimately, it becomes range anxiety. Like, hey, I get in my car at 8 in the morning, and I drive till 8 at night. And by my math, that means I've got to stop in the middle of the day and, and do a charge. And that's time off of the road. And so I'm not quite ready yet, which is why you see a lot of hybrids in, in that space. But then I say, well, do you stop for lunch? Yes. How long do you stop for lunch? Well, I stop for lunch for 
45 minutes usually, or I take a break, you know, during the day to spend time with my kids or, or whatever. And like, if you can work the charging cycle into your daily routine, it's totally, you know, possible. And and now just recently I landed at San Jose airport and was picked up in a, in an Uber that was a Tesla and now, you know, Hertz and has a program with them to rent the vehicles and put them into the fleet. So the tra- transition is happening and the range anxiety is really, it's more of a mental thing. Like, at ChargePoint, we had a lot of opportunity to understand when drivers were out of fuel in their electric vehicles. We're talking hundreds of thousands of drivers. It rarely happens. Like it just almost doesn't happen. Like people, they figure it out. They they watch their indications and they find charging when they need to. And, and oh, by the way, almost all of the trips that you make on a daily basis are way under the range of the vehicle. So I, I think the mental block is a little bit part of the big problem, not necessarily the, the physics of the problem. Alan joins an impressive roster of recent guests on this show who are also driven to save the planet. Troy Carter and his team at Earthshot Labs are committed to reforesting the earth. Mark Chang and his co-founders at Fertigris started the company to reduce energy inefficiency in commercial buildings. We need to move fast if we're going to wean the world off of fossil fuels and cut global carbon emissions before it's too late. If, as Alan says, we're only 1% towards full conversion of gas-powered vehicles, there's never been a better time to hop on the new electric truck highway. Thank you for listening. Follow Before Happen on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe rate and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.